Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Hola, hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese My Podcast. And you know what, mi gente, we can never talk about money enough. Let's just be real. Today, I have a special guest, Yaneli Espinal. Yaneli, how are you? So good. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me on and having me, Jessica. Oh, I'm really excited to have you here because like we were just speaking about you know, you can never talk enough about money, That's which right. is completely opposite of how so many of us grew up, right? Shh, about money, shh, about money. And now all of us are like, no, we need to talk about money. We need to talk about mm-hmm. all of these things because we can't talk about generational wealth. We can't talk about how we pull ourselves into it in or out of a particular situation. We can't talk about any of those if we don't talk about money. That's I mean, right. I don't believe money is the root of all evil, but I definitely believe money makes the world go around. Oh, it does. That it does. So I'm really, really excited to have you here and talk about your book, which is Mind Your Money, which I love because obviously it's like mind your business, but is mind your money, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But before we get into all of the chisme, we always start, actually, let me read your bio. And then we'll get into the wine and then the cheese mix. Let's do it. All right. Yanelli is a Brooklyn-born ball of energy with an intimate knowledge of financial education, culture, and politics in America. Known on the internet as Miss Be Helpful, she's a millennial financial educator who started her career as a teacher and now serves as the Director of Educational Outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. In her role with NGPF, she is currently on a roller coaster ride across the country convincing lawmakers to make personal finance a high school graduation requirement. Over the last four years, Yaneli has been instrumental in working with governors and state legislators to pass legislation that requires personal finance education in order to graduate in Florida, which was SB 1054, Michigan, HB 5190. Georgia SB 220 and Rhode Island H5491 and North Carolina. So that is so rad. Seriously, that is so rad that you're able to do that. I think this is, you know, talking and uh, talking about being able to get something in high schools, I think is something that people are talking about so much. Yep. And the fact that you are literally working in that to make sure that happens. I think that's just amazing and that's awesome. And I'm super excited. But before we get into the chisme, 
Yeah. We always start with the wine. Now we're doing this kind of early. It's before 11 o'clock, but you know what? Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do for the people. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you. I don't know if you're drinking wine. I could see you not drinking wine because it's before 11, but if you are, yeah, I got my wine. Well, I'm on the East Coast, so it's actually almost 2 p.m. So I okay, okay. New glass so you're good. You're good. What? So <laughs> share with us what you're drinking today. Yeah, so I'm actually in a hotel. I'm for I'm here for a conference, so I went down to the lobby and got a glass of red wine and the best one they had, which I liked, was like a $17 glass of wine, which is a little pricey. But I was like, you know what? I'm here for business. It's fine. But this is a, a California blend. Nice. It's still pre 11 a.m. here in California. So I went with a white wine. I am drinking Seis Soles, which is one of our friends of the podcast. It's a Latineo wine brand based out of Lodi. And this, this is one of my favorite white blends. It is so good. It is 62% Alvarino and 38% Grenache Blanc. And it's only $19. What? That's almost as much as I pay for this glass, girl. Yes, girl. <laughs> and it's so good. I think because um, but it's just so good. Chris Rivera, the owner, he mm-hmm. is such he's become a really good friend of mine. And mm-hmm. he started his wine brand right around when I started the podcast over three and a half oh, years ago. Love that. We kind of grown together. He reached out to me on Instagram and I was like, yeah, of course, I'll try your I'll try your wine. Send me That's free so wine. Cool. Sure. Right. Right. <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And, you know, I think I tell people all the time when it comes to wine, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to, this kind of feeds into like the financial stuff that we'll get into, right? Oh yes. It's like wine is very subjective. So find what you like. If you're, if you're under, if you're somebody who's like, you know what, I really want to enjoy it. Maybe it's just a special treat that you get to treat yourself with every once in a while. And there are really good wines for under $10, even $20. So hundred percent, like figure out what, what you want, but I'm super excited. There's a really good, no, no, I love talking about wine, by the way. Even when I was in my debt repayment journey, like I was very much on a frugal type budget to try to pay off my credit card debt. I still would get like my bottle of red wine once a month because I was like, you know what? I need to have a little bit of joy in my life. And I really loved drinking wine. I was a teacher during the day. So at night I would come home and be like, oh, I just need a glass of wine. So I would always get one. And honestly, I bought a $10 bottle of wine at this really cute local Latine owned wine shop in Bushwick in Brooklyn, where I was living at the time. And I loved my little $10 bottle of wine. It was great. And that's the thing, like you said, it's subjective. It's what you like. You know, nowadays I drink stuff that's a lot less sugar, um, you know, sulfate free. I try very much to think about, okay, what am I making that is not going to, you know, put me on a sugar high or, you know, prevent me from falling asleep and sleeping well. So yeah. those things are on my mind a lot more now, but in my twenties, girl, a cheap bottle of wine is a delicious bottle of wine. Yes. Hey, you know what? And I think anybody who's, who's just going on this money journey, I think so often we think we have to cut so much out, Mm -hmm. but if you're not enjoying finding those joys, like you said, you're like, that was your monthly joy thing. Yeah. Yeah. Then it becomes harder and harder to continue on that path. But girl, let's just get into it because I was telling you before we started that I always talk about how people grow up. And what's led them to this journey and your book literally lays it out, (laughs) right? How you grew up and the very first story in the book is talking about you 
being completely oblivious to what actually welfare is and blurting mm-hmm. out that you're, oh yeah, it's welfare day type of thing. Yeah. And your sister's like, yo, she's so mad at me. Oh my God. So tell me about how you grew up and, and what your relationship to money was growing up or was there any sort of relationship to money? Yeah. Okay. So uh, growing up, I definitely would say there was not a real relationship to money. I didn't really think about it much. Honestly, I knew there was this aura about my family and my parents. And I my forgot dad to especially. say salud. Salud. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had my little sip and I didn't say salud, salud. Delicious. This, this wine is here. Um, so yeah, you know, I never really talked about it. I just knew I got this vibe from my dad, who was the sole breadwinner in my house, that, you know, money was tight a lot, all the time, often. So don't ask for money unless you really, really need it for something important. So my parents are both immigrants. They came from Dominican Republic in the late 70s, early 80s. They moved to New York City. First, they lived in Manhattan downtown, which is kind of wild to think about that because now it's like one of the most wealthy shopping areas in New York City, Soho, the Soho neighborhood, south of Housing Street, which is- Oh yeah, that's where I stayed last time I was there. Which is wild. I mean, you know what that looks like. It's beautiful. It's like a a really main uh, shopping area. But back in the early 80s, that was all tenement apartments for immigrants. Mm -hmm. And my dad and, and my uncle, my grandpa, and a bunch of guys that they came here with were all sleeping on little- sleeping mats, cots um, in the kitchen, on the bathroom, in the sala, like on the living room floor, just, you know, all lined up because they were all sharing one apartment in this, you know, tenement building. But um, eventually my dad was able to bring my mom over and my mom and dad had nine children. So being poor, not knowing the language, not having money, not having a network, a social network, and also being very limited in the types of jobs that you could get as an immigrant who doesn't speak English or have an education beyond like the third or fourth grade. You know, my dad and my mom, they were very limited. And so with nine children, it only made things even harder. So yeah, definitely not a lot of money and no conversations about money. Where are you in that nine number? <laughs> People always ask me that. And I'm always like, thankfully, I'm not the middle child. My sister is the number five, who I talk about in the book a lot. She and I were like, we grew up kind of like butting heads a lot because my mom treated us like twins because we were only a year apart. But she's number five. I'm number six. So I came six out of nine. I'm the youngest of the five girls. And I have three younger brothers after me. Oh, my gosh. My mom's the youngest of 10. Ooh, so, very similar. And my dad's like the middle of 12. So I get the, like, but I'm the oldest of three. So there's, I can't imagine more than that. I mean, I tell my siblings all the time, like all my siblings at this point, my sisters, the four of them have kids. I'm the only sister of the five girls that does not have children. And I'm always telling them, I'm like, I think between mommy's kids, our cousins and your kids, I think we're good. I don't think I need to contribute anymore, any more kids. I think we have enough children in the family. So I think we're good because I just can't imagine (laughs) like, oh my gosh, having so many kids is wild. Oh my gosh. Yes. I know. I don't have, I don't have any kids. I, my partner, he has three kids, but Mm -hmm. they're all grown. They're all adults and everything. So we have two fur babies and that's enough. That's enough. Listen, that you know when enough is, you know what's enough for you. If it makes you happy, then it's enough. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I love that you talk so openly about this in regards to just to not having a relationship with money. Because I think so many of us, I think a lot of kids do just generally, but it, right. particularly when you come from communities of color, like that's such a hush, hush, hush topic. Right. Like I, I I was saying on a previous one, we're talking about money. I remember growing up and, you know, you see your parents writing, like my parents would write checks, 
right? For rent or for every, every once in a while doing other things. And I'd be like, let's go do this. And mom's like, we don't have money. I'm like, what do you mean? Just write a check. Get one of those papers. Get one of those papers that you have. (laughs) Yeah. What are you talking about? She's like, that's not how it works. Things that she's like, you have to have money in the bank. And I was just like, okay. But it's, you know, that's so funny because the modern version of that, I mean, I didn't grow up like that. Like I, my parents never had a debit card, never had a checking account, never had a checkbook, never had credit cards, none of that. Like it was cash only. My dad worked in the mm-hmm. service industry. And then later on, he was a taxi driver. So it was pretty much only cash. Um, and my mom just, you know, worked in factories at the very beginning of her time in the in the States. And then once all the kids came, she was like, I got to stay home and take care of these kids. It's more expensive to pay for childcare than it is to, oh my gosh, you know, forego a paycheck and stay home. So, but the funny thing is now I have like 10 nieces and nephews. So even though, you know, I personally don't have kids, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly like in auntie mode with all my nieces and nephews. And recently one of my nieces was like telling me, Thea, I just wish I had an iPhone, Thea. Like I first want an iPhone so bad. And I'm like, baby, what do you need an iPhone for? You know, when I was your age, I was like eight years old. I was playing with Barbies. I was making stuff with Play-Doh. I was doing coloring book activities. Like, you know, you're a kid, like you shouldn't be stuck on a phone. You should be enjoying playing with toys and having fun. And she's like, well, but the thing is, Thea, like if I had an iPhone, I could buy anything I want. I could just tap my phone to pay for stuff. <laughs> she watches her mom, <laughs> you know, use Apple Pay. And yeah. it's so funny that like, it's that same concept that you're describing from your childhood of being like, just mm-hmm. get one of those papers, get one of those checks and pay for it. She's saying, if, if I got an iPhone, I could just tap and pay for stuff. That, it just goes to show that even from young, a young age, we don't talk about the concept of money. So yeah. if you don't really discuss the concept of money, what is the role of money? What is money? How do you earn money? Then kids tend to just assume that the way, the methods for paying for things are the money. That's a danger that happens when you don't talk to kids early and often enough about, you know, really what is money. Oh yeah. And maybe I was more successful though. I was a little thief growing up. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get caught, girl. I got caught bad. <laughs> I did not get caught, girl. Me and my friends, especially when even up through high school, but probably my, my freshman year was probably the last year I really ever did anything like that. Oh my gosh. But you know, I was reading this and you're talking about like, you wanted to get a present and you saw this lip gloss. It was, you had five, I think you said you had $4, but it was three ninety nine, and you knew it with tax, you weren't going to have enough money. And so you're, you know, I love that you were, you're talking about that because I, Bet so many people were little thieves, but you got caught. They like, so you, and talk about like the, so you got tricks up your seat, sleep because you literally put it up your sleeve. The security guard kills me. You know, it's so funny because when I think about that memory, there's a little compartment in my brain where it's stored, which stores like trauma, like incidents related to like traumatic things that happened to me. But then at the same time, there's another compartment where there's like funny things that have happened to me. And this memory lives in both of those compartments because as traumatic as it was, it was also hilarious that that security guard. So I grew up in Brooklyn in Bushwick, which was a very vivacious, like black and, and Latina community. Majority of us were from the Caribbean specifically. So I'm talking, you know, Jamaican, Haitian, Trinidadian, Bayesian, Trinidadian you know, a lot of, you know, Puerto Rican, Dominican. And so that vibe, right, that Caribbean culture, it's very sassy. It's very sassy. I don't know like how else to put it, but you always, it's very witty. You always got to come back for something and you're, you know, thinking at the top of your mind, you think of funny things. And 
So it's hilarious that there was this guy at the Dwayne Reed, which was the pharmacy where I was stealing from. And my sister and I were walking out. She had no clue that I stole the lip gloss. I thought I was so slick. I ripped a little plastic barcode off and I slipped it up my sleeve. And when we were walking out the door, the security guard who knew what I did, because he watched the, the footage, the, the video camera in the back of me doing it, he approached us and he's like, oh, so you think you got tricks up your sleeve? And the moment he said my sleeve, I, I like froze. I was like, oh my gosh, he knows, he knows that I, he knows what I did. Like, and I don't know how, because I thought I was so slick, but later on we walked around the store cause he took us to the back to show us the video of me stealing. And funny enough, the spot where I was stealing, the camera was directly above <laughs> my little head. Like there was no me being slick there. They, I was not smooth at all. And so it's hilarious because he literally saw me go directly under the camera and do this, put it in my sleeve. And then he stopped me and said that, which you know, I always in the book, I included that it was very embarrassing. And, you know, I was definitely ashamed, but the guilt and the shame and the real embarrassment, none of that really set in with me until I saw my mom and dad's faces, because I just knew that they were so disappointed in me as poor as they have been their entire lives. And I'm not talking about poverty in the U.S. I'm talking about poverty in a developing country like the Dominican Republic. They grew up in the mountains, in the rural, most remote middle of nowhere, dirt roads, no traffic lights, you know, no running hot water type of thing. And as poor as they were, they never think to steal or modeled stealing to me or talk, you know, talked about that. So they were just like, where did that come from? Like, we've never taught you that that's the way to go. Like, we just don't understand. They were just so heartbroken. And I felt so bad because I was like, I just let them down. And like, I broke their hearts. And so I, I worked that's really the worst, hard. Right. The disappointment is worse than the anger. Yeah. Exactly, girl. It was their disappointment in me was like what really broke my heart it was not me getting caught or like how embarrassing it was that they had video footage of me. Like, I didn't care. I was like, no, mommy and papi, I'm so sorry. Like, that's not who I really am. I promise I'm going to make it up to you. So, you know, and then I became a goody two shoes at school because I felt like I had to be little Miss Perfect to make up for that. You know, that really big mistake that I made earlier. Yeah. No, me and my friends would, um, yeah, I was a good little thief. I'm not even gonna lie. I was a good little thief. And it started with like magazines, like those teeny bopper magazines. Yes. And then I think like lip gloss here or there. And then mm -hmm. by the time like me and one of my friends were in middle school, we were like clothes. We were stealing like clothes. Oh my God. And ignore like the big time. The, yeah, the big department stores, they used to have like you put in a quarter and you could get one of those big bags. So you could put like all your stuff in one bag instead of yeah. a instead of having several bags. So that's what we would get. We would get one of those Ooh. bags. And I remember I was with my friend Cindy one time and see, are you just incriminating Cindy? Just throwing yeah. her. <laughs> she knows, she knows who she is. I don't know where she is anymore, but you know, who knows if she even listens, but like they were watching her. And what I would do is I was engaged with the salespeople. Mm. Hi, how are you? Hi. Da, 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 da. So then they'd be like, oh, she's, so nice she's so sweet and they would never look at me the least expected person right the yes Lisa. and mm, then when we she approach. actually went to go buy something at the counter and they're like she's like i'll get this and then they and she'll get this and she'll mm. start taking stuff out of her bag and i had way more in my bag they didn't even look at me twice wow no because you're actually buying a bunch of stuff too that's the other thing i think a lot of people that steal it's like they're slick about it. They'll come in and buy stuff too. So then it doesn't look like they're just leaving with stuff. They're paying for certain things. So it's like, oh no, look, I'm a no, patient she was here. trying to pay for something. I wasn't. Mm. <laughs> you were like, like, not me though. Not me, not me. I was just taking it. <laughs>
Yeah, we're we're bad now. Oh my gosh. If I walk out with something, I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot to pay. You I know, will like, run back in all oh, yes. the same way. Oh my gosh. And this only ever happened to me one time. And I ran back and I'm like, I'm so sorry, I forgot to pay for this. Can I go? You know, because I just can't live with the guilt. Like I just oh. I'm like, oh, so bad. No, I could not do that at yeah. all anymore. Oh my gosh. No. I would feel so guilty. You're right. I would feel so guilty. And it wasn't that, that I ever got caught. I just stopped. See, but like that's I, good. Yeah, that's I good. Just, I, I think that that's something just clicks for you. Because like for me growing up, like I would ask my mom and dad for money and I knew the answer was always going to be no. It was rare. If my dad gave me money, it was so rare. It was, he must have, you know, hit a little lotto number or he must have like, you know, made extra money this week. Something happened that was out of the blue, rare, not the norm because he usually would say no, I didn't No, no, no. He would always say no when we asked for money. And so for me, I remember, like I have vivid memories growing up thinking, I'm just going to have to steal this. I'm just going to have to steal that because if Papi doesn't have the money and I need this thing, like, what am I going to do? I, I'm going to have to steal it. Well, and in high school, one time I contemplated stealing a TI-83. Oh, the calculator. <laughs> the calculator. The from graphing calculator. And I, I thought I, I was like thinking of a plan to like go to Best Buy or something and, and steal one. And, you know, thank goodness I ended up not doing that. I spoke to my teacher and the teacher was like, girl, you just go to the math department and tell them to give you one of the ones that they have lying around that, you know, the students either left it from past years or that the department has extras. Just go and ask. You don't need to, you know, spend money if your parents don't have. So thank goodness I went and I got a free one from the math department because I was, I hadn't stolen anything since I was probably like 12 years, 11 or 12 years old. And in high school, I thought about it again, but thank goodness I didn't do it. So I think those thoughts, they obviously come up a time and time again. And that's like to test your character, you know, to the really yeah. test where you're at, where are your real values at? You know, what kind of person are you, whether you're being watched or not? That's really yeah. the truth teller. Oh, completely. Well, speaking of high schools, you went to LaGuardia High School, also known as the yes. Fame High School. The Fame School. Yes. It's so funny. People are always like, oh, that's, I can't imagine like what it's like going to that school. And I'm like, it's literally like the movie and the, and the play. <laughs> like, it's just like that. People are dancing in the halls, like in the cafeteria, doing beats on the, on the cafeteria table. Like, this is literally what it is. It's the most creative kids from all the five boroughs in one building. And it was amazing. Best years of my life. Now, you living in Bushwick and that being in Manhattan, I know it's all these create creative types and everything, but with that, I would imagine, so please correct me if I'm wrong, because girl, I have no idea. I just, just think of things in my head, right? Yeah. I would imagine that there probably was some uh, economic disparity within the students within that, that school as well, because they are coming from all five boroughs. So tell me about like, how you worked through yourself and through that, like things that you saw in mm -hmm. high school and that economic disparity and what kind of thoughts did you start forming when it came to money in high school? Yeah. You know, honestly, I do think it started in high school. It, it didn't get as powerful or strong of a force over me and my mindset until I got to college. And, for, and I don't know why that shift was so much more dramatic, like in terms of the pressure that I felt was way stronger in college for me, but it did start in high school, even middle school, honestly, because I went to a middle school where you had to wear a uniform every day to school, but the shoes that you wore, the, your um, footwear could be any, any type of footwear. So of course, footwear became the way that you show how cool you are because we all have to wear the same uniform, but Hey, my shoes though. So, you know, kids will wear Jordans and Tims and Nikes and Pumas and this and all that Adidas and all the fly stuff. And so, and I never really had, you know, anything fancy, like, you know, footwear that was fancy, expensive or anything. So I would just wear like hand-me-downs for my sisters and whatever my mom bought us from Payless back in the day. So that, you know, for me, high, middle school just wasn't really 
that much pressure because I didn't have much in my control about what I could wear, what I could buy. But in high school, I did have a job. So I started working at an architecture firm my freshman year. I was an intern there. I was probably one of three paid interns and it was really cool. Like I was learning from actual architects. It was a, a public development uh, project that I was at least part of. So they were uh, renovating a lot of the infrastructure in the public park, which is uh, one of the main parks in Chinatown area of Manhattan. So like the Lancy Broad Street area. And it was really cool because it was a lot of like immigrants that were coming in and out of the neighborhood. And there was a transition phase, but the park, the public park was trying to do a a new project to really honor those immigrants that had come through early through like Ellis Island, even to New York. So I was really part of that. And I took a lot of pride in that, but being one of the three paid interns meant like I was making good money for somebody at 14 years old. So it was really cool to be learning all this stuff. But for me, I was just like, this is my paycheck. Like this, this, this cool as this project is for me, it was really just about the money. And I would make, you know, my couple hundred dollars every paycheck, every two weeks. And so I was able to buy stuff. I was able to buy myself. I remember I, I got myself a pair of Jordans. I got myself like a Jordan jersey. I got myself all the name brand, like Lady Anichi jeans were hot back then. I bought myself those Lady Anichi jeans, or baby fat shirt that I, you know, all these things like a North Face coat, right? Those were things I could actually buy myself uh, because, you know, I was working and I didn't really have any other use for the money. But when I got to college, I felt like those things was like amateur social status stuff like in college everything was in order to actually you had accepted school. to like an ivy league school yes. and well i think many of us the audience included know that that a lot of those kids have money and even if you're there on a scholarship it's you know that doesn't mean that you're getting money for for all of these other things just to even exactly. live you. So exactly. yeah, absolutely. Right. And so, and I think that the shift to me too, was like in, in high school, we were all kids from the city, you know, in order to go to New York's to uh, one of the New York city specialized high schools, LaGuardia being one of them, you had to be from the five boroughs. So we're talking about a, a, a spectrum of wealth pretty much in this certain radius of miles around that school building versus going off to Brown universities is where I got my scholarship to you know, now I'm in a campus where the radius in terms of the miles that people are come, traveling to come attend that, we're talking globally. We're talking about a global radius. We're, we're no longer talking about, you know, five boroughs in New York City. You had people, international students who would literally fly on a private jet to come and start classes again in the fall. So that level of wealth disparity was so much more extreme when you compare it to what I experienced in high school. And I think that that maybe that's the root of where that pressure came from for me to feel like I fit in. I mean, Emma Watson was one of the students in my art, one of my art classes when I was at Brown. And for those listening, that's Hermione from Harry Potter. Okay. Yeah. Like that, the actress Emma Watson was a student at Brown while I was there. So for me, you know, my little broke butt with no money in terms of what my parents were able to provide was little to nothing. And then I'm sitting next to Emma Watson in art class. Like, come on, you know, it felt to me like I got to try my hardest to at least feel like I fit in here. And like, there's nothing different between me and Emma or me and the Emmas of the, of the you know campus, even though clearly there was a, ma a really major difference. And I, sh I'm not in that lane at all. So I shouldn't be trying to be in that lane and compete with that lane because that's not, that's not my lane, but you know, I didn't have any type of guidance in thinking about these types of conversations, these ideas and these themes around, you know, money, the role of money and where the self-control kind of kicks in about what you should and should not do when it comes to money and spending. Yeah. And you got in the trap where a lot of college kids get trapped in that first credit card. 
Yep. And you share and you share it's before the law was passed where you couldn't give gifts for applying for a credit card. So they're offering you a t-shirt. So you're like, oh, I get a free t-shirt. Oh, I get, but like you said, you were never taught. Your parents didn't have a credit card. They didn't have a debit card. They didn't have, so you had nowhere to look in regards to how to use that responsibly. And there was nobody to tell you. So you just were like, oh yeah, I need a MacBook. Oh yeah. I need this. Oh, I need some Uggs. Oh, I need this. I need that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can relate to that in regards to just getting yourself in a lot of debt while in college, Oh, for sure. Um, trying to kind of keep up with the brown crowd, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that keyword. And when we say brown, we mean brown university. Yeah, brown, brown university people, <laughs> not brown people. Um, you know, you use the word need, like I need this MacBook, I need these, you know, boots, I need this and that. And I really think that at 18, 19 years old, I had a felt need. You know, a felt need is different from an actual need. Mm-hmm. Again, I didn't have the sophistication of the mindset or of the vocabulary to distinguish between those things because everything was a felt need. I need, I need this. I need all of these things. I need textbooks, just like I need this new dress for this party. I need all of these things are needs to me in my mind when I'm 18, 19. And, you know, while some folks will look at that and be like, girl, please 18, 19, you're grown. You should know the difference between wants and needs. But psychology is so powerful and your emotions can completely cloud your ability to think logically and rationally, especially when you're making choices with money. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me at 18, 19 years old, man, I was swiping them credit cards. I got my first one, then I got my second one. By my junior year, I had three different credit cards. And the year after I graduated college, I had four different credit cards and over $20,000 of debt. Even though I was one of those kids that was quote unquote lucky, I, mean, I would not quote unquote, actually, actually lucky. I was lucky. I got a scholarship that paid for my tuition, my dorm room, my meals. But even with that, I still racked up ten, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in debt because there was so much social spending that I was doing and a lot of peer pressure to take spring break trips, to buy certain name brand things, to go to certain parties, to, you know, go to people's birthday dinners, to go bowling, to go to the movies, to, you know, get Chipotle, like just to be part of the crew and the crowd and go with the flow. Like I was spending so much money over the course of those four years and I wasn't keeping track of any of that. When you were at Brown University, was there any like discussion among your friend groups about money and how it's handled or anything like that? Yeah. So I was in a group of friends who were about four of us that were like really tight girls, a girl group of friends. And I want to say almost all of us, maybe with the exception of like one came from a lower income or lower middle income family. And so we were definitely open with each other about the struggles. And sometimes we would say like, again, I was very lucky because I didn't have to deal with like the student loans and the tuition payments and things. But there were times where some of my closest girlfriends would be crying um, and telling me, listen, I don't think I'm gonna be able to come back for next semester because they put a hold on my account with the financial aid office and I can't register for classes until we pay the tuition and I don't have the money. My parents don't have the money. I don't know where I'm supposed to come up with this money to pay this tuition. And it it would break my heart because even though I understood the struggle, I was so poor that I was given a a free ride. Like I was able to go to college without having to pay because my parents literally didn't have the money to pay. This friend, her parents on paper appeared to have enough Uh. money 
So the school wouldn't provide her with the financial assistance that she needed just as much as I needed it. But because on paper, their family made too much money or because they owned a home or because whatever other things on paper make it appear that you have a certain amount of money or status that the university wouldn't consider them for some of the uh, need blind admissions, right? Which is just scholarship funding that you get that you don't need to pay back because of your parents or your family's incomes and low income status. So that was for me was heartbreaking when I would talk to my girlfriends and and, they, and I would be like, I don't even know how it can help. Like, I wish I could help. I want to help. But, you know, those are some of those issues where you end up, you know, seeing how it kind of gets worked out. In my friend's case, I think her parents had to end up taking out some student loans for her. And that's the reality for a lot of college students. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of why we're at where we're at right now with, with the cost of education and stuff. I resonate so much with that because I'm not, we were really like very just middle class, right? Very middle class growing up. And we moved to Albuquerque for two years out of California. And when we came back, because we were gone for two years, even though I'd grown up here my whole life, we were no longer residents. We had to reestablish residency in the state. Yeah. I had to take a year off from school. And then when I went back and I was going to community college after I reestablished residency, my parents, they gave me a check to pay. And then my professor, one of my professors, in one of my classes, he called me up and he was like, I got notified oh, that there was something wrong with your the payment. Check. And so my parents' check had bounced mm-hmm. and I had to drop out of school because there was, mm-hmm. I didn't have any way to pay for anything else. Like I, like I wanted to go to school and I couldn't. And, you know, growing up, i never felt like I need, now looking back, I never felt like I needed for anything. And there was a, a lot of things that were going on, but, you know, when you feel like you want to do something so bad. So my heart is breaking hearing that story and you want to go to school or you want to do something so bad. And on paper, I never really went back to school until after I left my parents' house and I had to establish my own thing because again, on paper, that's right. My parents owned a home. My dad was the only one who worked. We were very fortunate, you know, that what he made was enough. And my mom would be like, Oh, I want to work. Oh, I'm bored. I don't like it anymore. After like three months, you know, hashtag goals, mama. I'm trying to live like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, but I mean, but still like it gave us enough, but then it wasn't, I grew up, you know, I played sports and I had to do all of the fundraisers to pay for Mm, my stuff. Right. Because I was a cheerleader. And when you're buying a uniform, that's not cheap. Going to cheer camp. I played softball, a bat and a glove and all of that. Yeah. That's not cheap. And the fees, the travel dues and, you know, it's a lot. So I spent, you know, all of my time I was either playing a sport or raising money so I could play for that play sport. sports right and so I I'm sure I'm not the only one who has felt that right obviously your friend felt that and everything but right. again when you go into a situation not knowing not understanding it makes it so much more difficult because when you get in that position like it's embarrassing mm-hmm. like how embarrassed was I to have my professor tell me your tuition check bounced and you can't be in this class anymore. Yeah. That is freaking embarrassing. Yeah. So when you graduate, you're in $20,000 worth of debt. Yeah. And then you go into Teach for America. 
Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know what Teach for America is, it's a really prestigious teaching program, but it's all these teachers that go in and they actually go and teach in high need areas. That's right. And you're only making what, $40,000 and you're $20,000 yeah. in debt? Right. Depending on what you teach and what grade level of certifications you need and the region and the country where you are. Back then, that was in 2011 that I started teaching. Oof, I, yeah, it was it was about $40,000 was my starting salary. And I was teaching third grade. I didn't have my master's degree yet. I just had my bachelor's. But as soon as uh, the only way you could teach without a master's in New York is if you're getting your master's actively while teaching. So I had to prove to them that I was enrolled in my education master's program, which I was. And I completed that during night school and on weekends while teaching full time for two years. And then I got my master's and I got a $5,000 pay bump. So making um, you know almost 46,000 or maybe just over 46,000 and I was like woo now I'm really making big money you know <laughs> and it's funny because at that time again like I just would look at my uh, my t- every two weeks like my paycheck and I would just focus on how much cash was coming and I never looked at my net worth you know so when we're talking about money we focus so much on the amount of money we have in our checking account our bank account yeah. or how much our our check the dep- direct deposit is you know these are numbers in isolation And numbers can never be in isolation. They're not useful. They're not helpful. You need numbers in context. Always you need numbers in context, right? So when you look at your $1,200 paycheck, it might feel good because it's in isolation. $1,200, great, I'll take it. But in the context of your situation, if you owe more than $1,200 this month, then that $1,200 paycheck starts to feel like it's not enough and it starts to feel small. So I finally pulled back and started looking at my finances in context, my whole financial picture, including how much I owed and how much I was making, what my savings account checking out, everything was my third year of me teaching, which was in about like 2013, 2014, that school year. And it was because I, I couldn't make my bills. Like I couldn't pay for the, the credit card bills, my rent, my groceries, my transportation, which was my train pass at that time, my Metro card, my cell phone bill, the electric bill, the gas bill, you know, all these things that I had to pay. And my parents would oftentimes ask me to help them pay some of their bills too. Like, you know, pick up the electric bill this month. Things are rough. I would, I would pay that for them too. So it all was just coming, tumbling down on my head. And I was like, the math ain't math. And like, this doesn't make no sense. How is it possible that? can't, you know, keep up with all these payments. So I finally pulled open my PDF uh, credit card statement and I started scrolling down past the first page, which, you know, that's the first mistake is that I never looked past the first page of my credit card bills. I would just look for the Ooh, girl. Uh, I got to see everything. What, what make sure I'm not being charged something I shouldn't be. <laughs> that's what we all should be doing, honestly. But I just would just but open back up then that I PDF. didn't either. Right. That's the thing, too, is the age. Like I was probably about 23, 24 years old. I would open up that PDF, look at the first page and look for a minimum payment due and the due date. Those are the only two things I cared about. How much do I have to pay and by when? So I would always pay my minimum due on time by the due date. But the rest of the money that was just old, outstanding too, still would get charged interest. And that interest is really high on credit cards, like 24%, 25% on a student credit card. In a lot of cases, mine, mine were. So that was how I kind of started to 
open my eyes to this and say, oh, nah, they get me. They're getting me real bad with this interest. These interest fees accruing. I'm never going to get out of this if I keep letting them charge me these thousands of dollars every year in interest. So that was kind of what, what first opened my eyes. But I'm not even going to lie. I don't I don't think I knew what to do because I remember just crying at my desk, like crying and, and not really knowing what to do. And then a couple of days later, I was in a Dwayne Reed. I shopped at Dwayne Reed a lot. And not the one that I got caught stealing because I wasn't allowed back in that one, but a different Dwayne Reed. (laughs) And I was, I was about to pay for my band 20 years later. (laughs) Here I am back again. Right. So I was buying stuff. You know, I was always in that habit too, of wasting money too. Like I was buying candles and little lotions and trinkets and Snickers bar, just things that I I didn't need. I could have gone without that stuff and just went home from work, but I would stop at the Dwayne Reed after work spend some money. And sure enough, I was paying for some things when I looked at the magazine rack and there was a book there, Women and Money. And I was like, wait a minute, like I'm I'm a woman. And I was literally crying at my desk this week about my money. Maybe, maybe this is like one of those signs from the universe, like this book, like you need to read. So I picked it up. It was a Susie Orman book. Um, So like old school kind of traditional finance book. And I read the book. I started reading like the first few pages and then I gave it to the the girl. I was like, I want to add this book to my purchase. And it was $9, best $9 I ever spent because everything that I never learned in school about basic money management, budgeting, the types of bank accounts, how to responsibly use a credit card, what is a loan, what's your credit score and why does it matter why you have to actually invest to grow your wealth. Saving will saving money will never grow your wealth. You know, these concepts and ideas, like all of that was in this one book geared specifically towards women. And that was the first major money mindset shift for me. I hate that people have to struggle and I've gone through my struggles, but I also love that, you know, a lot of the people that I've talked to have gone through the struggle because it becomes when you start sharing the information, which is what you eventually start doing, right? As mm-hmm. you're going through it, you're like, okay, I'm just going to record. Cause you even said it was just easier to do a video than to do a blog or anything like that. So you're just yep. like getting on saying, so I just learned this and this is what I'm doing. It wasn't even like, you're like, oh, I'm a professional. Oh, I'm this, oh, I'm that. It was really sharing your story and people were following your journey That's as right. you're going through it. What was the first main thing when you're reading this book. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of things that go along with that, right? Is you're, you're reading this book yeah. and you, what was the first main thing that you're like, how come this is the one thing I never knew? So, I mean, for me at that time, I was just very sensitive about my credit cards because that was really the problem that I was experiencing. So I think I read the first chapter, which was like her intro about, you know, women specifically need to take control of their money because in society, we are relegated to this role of taking a backseat to the financial situation in the household. So, you know, whether it's your husband, especially in like these traditional heteronormative relationships, man and a woman, you know, straight, cis, hetero relationships, women tend to be the ones that leave these money decisions to their husband or to their fathers. And she was talking about that and I it, it really struck a chord with me because that's literally how I grew up. I watched my dad be the one who made the money, who made the money choices. My mom would ask him, Mira, Arturo, falta dinero aquí. We don't have money for this. And he, and he would be like, let me think about it if, I'm a, if I can give you money for that. It was never her having agency or control over the financial decisions or access to money. It was always waiting for him to decide whether he was going to approve her request or not. 
And I, I just, it always rubbed me the wrong way. And so when she named that, Susie named that in the book, it struck me. It's like, yes, that is true. That's how mommy and papi dealt with things. And I don't want to be like that. I don't want to repeat those negative cycles. So I think that caught me, that hooked me. Then I skipped over to the chapters about credit cards because I was going through that myself. And, you know, even though my parents never had credit cards, I was sitting there hiding all this credit card debt. And the main thing that Susie talked about was your five factors of credit. It literally, it hit me so hard. Like, why was I never taught that there's a game with these credit cards that I'm playing? The moment you have a credit card, you're part of the game. But no one told you that you're in this game and no one even explained the rules of the game. They just throw you in and you're supposed to somehow figure out that there's a game going on. You're one of the players. Your credit card is how you play. And there's five rules that if you follow them, you win the game. And if you don't, you lose the game. How was I ever supposed to just, those things were supposed to just fall into my brain. Like no one ever told me that. So when she explains the five factors of credit, she explains it in such a way where you realize that like, these are the five things that when you do them right, you add points to your credit score, which makes you have a good financial reputation. So you get better rates when you borrow for a home or for a car or for a personal loan. And if you do these five things wrong, they take away, they subtract points from your credit score. Your credit score drops and that hurts your chances of getting approved for things like a car, a loan, a home. So it was just so eye-opening for me because I had never learned about your credit score and these five factors. And it's funny because now in my book, I also explain the five factors of credit, but I don't call them the five factors of credit. I call it your credit syllabus. Because like you said, like it was, it was one of those moments where it hit me that like, how could I never have learned this? And for me, like I was always good in school. Part of it was because obviously I was trying to impress my parents and redeem myself for getting caught stealing, but also because I'm just like a curious kid. Like I was always a curious kid. I loved learning. I would stay up late at night under the sheets with my flash, like reading like my little babysitter's club books and my box park <laughs> children books and stuff. And you know, my mom would be like, I quite she would turn off the lights and I would get in trouble because I wanted to stay up late reading. And so I loved reading. I loved learning. That's always been, you know, a part of, of my character and my traits. Right. So in college and even in high school, like I really did well in school. Academically, I always got good grades because I liked learning. I enjoyed taking tests and showing that I've learned this and that I've mastered this. So if I had been given a class to take about money, money management, where I was taught about the five factors of credit, I would have succeeded. I know that I would have succeeded because I succeeded in physics and English language arts and in, in calculus and in, in Spanish, AP, French, all these classes that I took, I've always did well. So I never got a chance to excel at money because I was never taught about money. So in my book, I frame the five factors of credit as your credit syllabus. So if you're taking a class, the professor will tell you right off the bat, like, okay, 35% of your grade is attendance. So you know you need to show up on time, show up to class, and that's going to give you this that many points to your grade. 30% of your grade is participation. Okay, you better raise your hand when you're in class and speak and make sure the professor knows your name. That idea of having a syllabus that breaks down your grade and what you need to do to get those points to me is such a, an obvious analogy between how to get a good grade, a good credit score grade right. and how to get a good grade in school. So for me, like I kind of decided to take what Susie had, had created in her book and what really impacted me early on and flip it into an analogy that I think would be sticky and helpful for students who've been in the public school system or in any school environment for decades of their life, whether they choose to go to college or not, they understand the concept of doing certain things to get a good grade. And that same concept is, you know, in place with your credit score. You just have to learn what those five things are and make sure you follow, you know, those rules to get those points. Yeah. I love, first of all, that 
your book is a very easy read. It's only 220 pages. Yes. And you really do share your story. Like you really integrate education within your story. Mm-hmm. Obviously you're a teacher, so. <laughs> it's natural and now, for me, yes. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, like literally just going through it and everything. It's like, wow, this is such an easy read. And I think what you've done in your book is really make it easy for people. I think there's levels for everything, right? Like, I feel like if you, if you've done the work, but you, there's still more to do, maybe there's somebody else for you. Like just, I always say that even for coaching or for anything, you need to find what works for you. That's right. That's why we don't just have one person talking about something. We have multiple people talking about different, about the same subject, because just because somebody else resonated doesn't mean that maybe somebody didn't resonate with that person, but then they're going to listen to this and resonate with you. Yeah. And you're continuing being a teacher in this way, but also as the director of educational outreach at NGPF. And as I read in your bio previously, you're instrumental in working with, with states to really pass legislation that requires personal finance education in order to graduate. Yeah. And I feel like we've been saying this for so long. Like we get taught these things. I mean, it's great to be well-rounded, but there's so many things like we don't have civics anymore. Right. Kids don't know how the government works. That's right. We don't have financial literacy. Yeah. Like how many times did, you know, I've, I don't use, I do use a spreadsheet to track all of my spending. I will say that I do use a spreadsheet because I had seen a friend who had his spreadsheet and I was like, I want that, send that mm. to me. Send that to me immediately because it had all the formulas and everything. I'm not an Done Excel for person. You. Yes, yes. So, so those are the best. Yeah. So he just cleared it out for me and sent me, uh, sent it to me. And that's what I've been using for like the last three years. Amazing. And I literally break it down by week of, okay, at the beginning of the week, this is how much money I have. And yeah. this is what needs to pay every, this one needs to get paid this week. So I know exactly like, okay, at the end do I want to do something or no, I don't want to do anything. And right now, you know, that's even more important because I recently lost my job. So mm-hmm. it's even more important that Absolutely. I am going through and, and doing that. But yeah. the fact that you're bringing your teaching into all of these things, what made you decide to go from a traditional classroom into mm. being a financial educator? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, so sorry you lost your job because that is stressful. I mean, at any given point in time, it's stressful, but especially when everybody's talking negatively about the economy and then you lose your job, it's like, you know, it's so stressful. So I always have that, like a feel for that, that situation. And I feel like the best thing you could do for yourself is exactly what you're already doing, which is tracking and being really on top of, and in the know about your finances, because, you know, for, for me, at least if I'm ever in a situation where the kind of money flowing in that I'm used to, isn't happening anymore for whatever reason, I go straight to my bare bones. Like my bare bones is like everything that I want that's nice to have gets cut out of my spreadsheet. And the only thing that stays is the needs, the actual things that I really need. And so being able to quickly refer to your spreadsheet is so key, right? Like, and too many people have no tracking system, no spreadsheet, no no piece of paper where they write it down, you know, no organized system for it. So just having that already is like such a, a huge stress relief for the situation. But I would say for me, like when I was a teacher, 
I recognized right away that being in the classroom, as much as I knew that I was making an impact on my students and it felt very empowering and I knew that I was getting results, like I could see that they were learning, I could see they were improving, especially over a few months, you, you really see a change in kids very quickly with what they learn, they pick things up very quickly. But I knew that I wasn't teaching them about money or financial literacy. And so they're gonna repeat the same thing that happened to me. They're gonna, even if they are the smartest kid ever and they go to Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, whatever great Ivy League schools and amazing schools. And, and even if they get full scholarships like I did, right? That this, this is all possible, that they could still end up clueless about money like I was in a bunch of debt like I was, you know, having no real idea about how to grow money or how to be financially free. So I, I wanted to make sure there had to be something that I could do that would make some type of change in this next generation and generations to come. So I didn't know really where to start. You know, I was a teacher. I didn't have much expertise outside of what I was doing, which was teaching elementary kids, elementary school kids. So I just started making videos on YouTube. That was in 2015. I posted my first video in like July of 2015. And that was, again, just basic lessons about credit and, you know, how, what I was learning, how I had improved my savings rate and started investing, learning about the stock market for the first time, you know, things that I'd never heard anybody in my community or my family talking about these things. So I started to share those things. what a 401k is? Because I know well, you, the first what time I had a 401k, I'm like, I have this, what the, I don't yeah. understand what I'm supposed to do with this. Or even worse, people don't even take advantage of it because they know that the paperwork is in front of them and they're like, like, I don't know what this is. So they just don't take advantage. They don't fill it out. They don't submit the papers. And so they have access to a 401k, but they don't use it. So, you know, it's it's bad in a lot of cases when you have no knowledge of how these things, how these systems and, and tools that may or may not be available to you, but that they're out there um, and how they work. So I started posting these videos and then somebody from the ngpf.org team reached out to me and asked me to come on to their podcast, much like this, wanted to have a conversation with me and have me be a guest and talk about how I was doing financial literacy um, on YouTube as well as teaching. And so I joined the podcast in 2017 as a guest. And then a couple of weeks after that conversation, the co-founder of that organization reached out to me and said, you know, your podcast episode with our team was awesome. We love what you're doing. Would you, we be able to use your YouTube videos in our online curriculum? And I was like, wait, you have a curriculum? <laughs> like, I, what, what is this curriculum? Because I don't see it in my school. I don't, I never learned it in, in school when I was in school. So what is this curriculum? So we jumped on a Zoom call. He explained to me, you know, everything that his organization was working on and that what their team was envisioning was that by the year 2030, all 50 states would have a requirement that for high school graduation, you have to take a semester long class about personal finance. Because a lot of people will say, oh, but financial literacy is in integrated in the curriculum. It is being taught in schools. But most of the time, it's either A, an elective. So that means that you have to opt in. So a lot of kids are not going to sign up for that class and then they just don't get it. Right. So not everyone gets access if it's an elective. That's the first problem. Second thing is it's embedded or integrated into another class. So maybe there's a semester class about business and marketing and they'll put two weeks of budgeting in there or it'll be like an economics class. And they'll start with a whole week of like doing a budget project for, you know, for personal finance. And that's it. Two weeks of budgeting is not a financial literacy education. No. Because personal finance and financial literacy includes banking, so checking and saving, budgeting, taxes, managing your credit, types of credit scores, investments, insurance, paying for college, alternatives to for your college, careers, entrepreneurship, 
I mean, it's such a comprehensive topic with so many different units of study that when people say, oh, we have, you know, three weeks of financial literacy inside of the, you know, the, the family and consumer science class, I cringe because I'm like, you really believe that you can teach kids banking, budgeting, investing, taxes, insurance, paying for college, careers, entrepreneurship, all of that in three weeks? Ain't no way. Like I used to be a teacher myself. You can't fool me. Ain't no way that you're going to teach all of that in a high quality way in such a short time. So, you know, through the organization and GPF, they really hooked me in and they built me in because I was like, yeah, you know, I recognize that you're tight for time in the classroom. When I was teaching, it was like every minute was like a precious learning minute. I couldn't waste time because you only have them for, for so long. And that a whole semester, which is 18 weeks of instructional time, really is the minimum. It should be more, but at least that's the minimum starting point to really do this class and this topic justice for everybody before they turn 18, cross the graduation stage, and then they can sign up for credit cards, sign up for loans, you know, do all kinds of stuff once you're 18. Without that education, you're obviously going to make a bunch of mistakes. So for me, joining the team there and like the getting involved in that work was like a no-brainer for me to, to do the next step there from teaching to that because I knew that that was going to have a much greater impact on education system in general, but on financial literacy than me with my 30 kids year in and year out. Right. God, that's so, I mean, seriously, even adults need this, right? Oh, yes. So to even start, how many people wish they would have known these things when they were in high school, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. Yes. And always. I'm going to be very, very transparent. Like I've definitely had my ups and downs in regards to when I moved back to California from Dallas and my credit was good, but then I wasn't, it took me nine months to find a job after eight months to find a job before I moved back. And that just killed my credit. Oof, right. And I'm finally at a point and I've been working and working and working and working. And I'm finally at a point where I'm like on that verge of, of breaking 700, which some people that's were like, great. oh yeah, that's nothing, whatever, whatever. No, no, no. no. When you good. freaking, when you kill your credit, it takes a lot to recover it back. Oh, it yes. takes so much work. It takes so yeah. much. So, and that to me is like, your point is one of the main arguments to why it needs to be taught before you turn 18, because one little mistake can ruin your credit for 10, 15 years versus if you're doing everything right, great, that's fine. But one little mistake takes sometimes 10 years before it will be fixed. So if it's, if it's going to have such or has the potential to have such a negative impact on the next 10 years of your life, don't you think that is one of the most important things to teach you before you go start being reckless with money and loans and credit cards and car loans and all these things that have a direct effect on your credit score, but you don't realize that this could ruin your life for the next 10 years. Like yeah. that to me is wow. So it's like that, to me, that that's one of the main arguments. If I'm in, in a room with lawmakers, I'm like, it's actually pretty easy to get them on board because they understand this. They're like, I, they agree. They wish they knew this when they were younger. And they also see this with their kids. They're yeah. like, yeah, I had to sit down with my daughter and explain to her, you know, how to file her taxes and how her credit score works. And, and I'm like, so don't you see that she needed to learn this in school? Like, and then they, they kind of get it. But the hard part is when you're trying to get a law passed, it can't just be a lawmaker who is in agreement or even five or 10 lawmakers. It has to be 
all the lawmakers that are on the education committee specifically. So when you're talking about the Senate side or the House side, both sides of the chamber, you need everyone on the education committee or the majority to be in support of this idea and this actual bill. And then you also need all the key stakeholders outside of the bill who might come in and testify. So that might be the superintendents, the principals, the parents, the students themselves. You know, you might have the Bankers League or the credit union folks, small business. There's so many key players involved in this in this issue that you kind of need everyone in a room to finally come together and say, we agree that this particular bill, the way it's written and everything from each period, comma, apostrophe, parentheses, every sentence, we all agree on this and we're going to move it forward so that the governor can sign it. And that's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, girl. My last job was in local politics, so I definitely so you get that. you yeah. know intimately definitely yeah. understand it's not an easy process. Yeah. One last thing I want to talk about before we close out: how so much of this information tends to be overlooked within communities of color, mm-hmm. in particular in communities of color and mm-hmm. low and in low income communities. Why do you think that is? And do you think like obviously? Having somebody like yourself and other people that I've talked to that come from other communities of color, I think is so powerful because we're able to relate to each other in a way that you may not relate to a Susie Orman. Right. So tell me why you think that this content isn't so readily accessible, just in not just in general, because we already talked about that, but in particular to communities of color. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the overlap between communities of color and communities that struggle financially, so when we're talking about overlapping race and socioeconomic class, they are not exactly correlated, but they have a major overlap. The large majority of individuals of color also happen to be individuals of lower socioeconomic status. You know, wealth begets wealth, right? So if we're talking about a community of people of color that have little to no access to real wealth, what is the knowledge, the familiarity you know, the expertise and experience with money that they are going to have to pass down from one generation to the next. It doesn't exist. It's not going to be there. So what, what a lot of communities of color do is do their best with what they do know, and they try their best to survive. And then that survival mode mentality, which is often rooted in a scarcity mindset, is what ends up getting passed down from one generation to the next. Versus when you look at communities that are largely, you know, Eurocentric, white uh, Americans, especially in this one, we're talking specifically in the United States, when I say this, when you look at white Americans, a large majority of those wealthy Americans, wealthy white Americans, have that direct experience the social network. So if they themselves are not rich, they have access to people around them that are also white and also rich. The expertise and the knowledge, they've done these things before, or they have an uncle or a grandma who opened an investment account for them when they were a kid, a trust fund or a college savings account. So there's, there's access to it around them through their networks and through their experiences. And in oftentimes in many cases, our expertise that gets passed down from one generation to the next, even though they don't get it in school, they get it at home. And a lot of communities of color, it doesn't happen in their schools. It also doesn't happen in the home. So for me, this is why, like, I feel like I'm fighting like financial literacy to me is like a social justice issue because when you think about like the foundational ideas around the public education system in the United States, 
because I have a master's in education, had to write at length about this in my master's program. So if you don't, if you're not familiar with these ideas, it was, you know, folks like John Dewey who were thinking about like learning by doing, you go to school and you learn, you learn to the things that you're going to apply in real life right away. And that this environment of being in a public school building with, you know, all of these other public school students is the great equalizer. It is the space where it doesn't matter if you're white and rich, white and poor, black and rich, black and poor, Latina and rich, Latina and poor. None of those things matter when you're in a public school setting. This is the great equalizer. We're all getting access to the same information, the same knowledge, so that we all have the same starting point, the same foundational framework and knowledge to operate off of when we go out into the real world and get jobs and start to, you know, become business owners or, you know, investors or what, what have you. So, you know, for me, I really do think it roots back all to schools and to teaching this in the school building, because that's how we're going to make sure that even if you're in a community of color that never had access to this knowledge and experience around wealth and experienced a lot of wealth inequality, you're still going to be able to catch up by getting it in the school where you have an opportunity to experience that great equalizer effect. And this is why funding public education is so important. I don't know if you if you've heard this stat, I heard a stat you know how a lot of these places are giving school vouchers. Uh-huh. These school vouchers are being used over 80% of the time by parents that already have students in those schools. So these, these wealthy people who can't afford them are using these school vouchers for their kids who are already going to school. Right. Uh, that's and- the thing. It's if you're aware of resources that are available to you, you're going to utilize them. So awareness of those resources is so important. How many families that really need that are probably not even aware that there's a voucher system in place. Yeah. And the fact that there even needs to be a voucher system because all public schools are not created equal, like that fundamental problem, it, you know, is, is something that we need to address as well. So, I mean, I completely agree with you as a former public school teacher and as a public education advocate, I think that it's more important than ever now to uplift our public school system, our public school teachers who work so hard and are underpaid and undervalued and make sure that we hold our public schools accountable, that they do teach things that are real world applicable like personal finances and make it relevant to the 21st century. No, we're not teaching kids how to balance a checkbook because they ain't going to do that. But we yeah. do need to teach them how to use mobile banking safely. How I mean, when I was in school, would have been balancing a checkbook. <laughs> right. And that's fine, girl. That's fine. Listen, you know, I was I was um, born in the late 80s, raised in the 90s. And I remember seeing people use checks to pay for stuff in the supermarket. My parents didn't do it, but I saw adults doing it. And even that now I realize just how fast the shift has happened in the space of money and technology and where those two things meet, which is, you know, finance and technology is called fintech. We think about the fintech space. Like if you do have a check, you can just take a picture of it on your phone and deposit it into your account with your camera phone. I mean, so when we think about how far we have come in terms of the technology that allows us to deal with our finances, there's just no way that we can not teach that to students and expect them somehow to still succeed because the way the technology is is growing and is changing and it's rapidly advancing, they need us to help them keep up. Girl, I could sit here with you for like a whole other hour. We could have another bottle, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So your website is mindyourmoneybook.com. That's right. People can find you on YouTube at Miss Be Helpful and Instagram at Miss Be Helpful as well. And the book is called Mind Your Money Book. Mi gente, I'm telling you, it is such an easy read. There is no reason that 
if you want to work on your finances even more, or even if it's something that you want to help give your kids, this oh, is a good teenage book. I think it's this so would be great. Yeah. New grad, real life, uh, nieces, nephews, kids, high school grad, college grad, even grad school graduate, yeah. you know, entering the real world kind of thing, going to the next transitional phase in their life. This is a really great gift, this book. Yeah. And it's not like, since it's 220 pages, you're not giving them this giant thing that they would feel very overwhelmed, overwhelmed. from. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's very, like I said, it's such an easy read. Go check it out. Go follow Yanelli. Go do all of the things. Go get her book. Go follow her on YouTube. Go follow her on Instagram. Do all of the things and make me look good. <laughs> and let me know if Jessica sent you because I'm always curious when I get like new followers or new supporters. I'm always like, hmm, how did you find out about me? So let me know. You heard the Wine and Cheese My podcast. And honestly, like for me, the biggest thing is like to take action. If you feel overwhelmed about money, if money's a topic that's heavy for you or traumatic for you, one, one baby step, one small action step that you can do, you know, read a book, subscribe to a blog listen to a podcast like this one. These are the small steps that you can start taking that will help you just feel a little bit less stressed today, a little bit less stressed tomorrow. It's not all going to happen overnight where you wave a magic wand. Magic can be found in the work that you have not done yet, that you've been neglecting when it comes to money. Once you do that work, that's where the magic is. So just yeah. commit to one, one action step, even if that's reading the book or if that's following a lot more creators who, to who talk about money on, on uh, social media. I talk about that a lot in the book and I have a free guide that pairs with the book. Part of that free guide is a spreadsheet with over 200 financial influencers and creators who's, who post content on social media that I recommend you follow that I follow because that's one of the easiest things you can do is just start following people. It's free content. It's on social. Yeah. So when you're scrolling and looking at JLo's booty, you can also be looking at money and how you can invest to grow and, your wealth. Okay. Right. No, <laughs> you know what? I appreciate that you did that because I think the way that we're able to help one another is to not gatekeep access. Uh -huh. And that's, you know, such a big part of what we do here, right? That's why we share information. That's why we're talking because so many of us, we didn't have access and we don't want to keep others from having access. This is not right. a competition. There's room for all of us to win. And we all want you to win in your credit too and get a home and get the things that you want and, and feel secure because as one rises, we all rise. That's right. I love that so much. Thank you so much, Jessica. This was so much fun. Oh, I know. Girl, it went by so fast. It went by so, so fast. Thank you, Yanelli. And you guys go do all of the things that I said and all of the links will be in the show notes as well. So Thank until you. next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Med Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese Med on our website, thewineandcheesemedpodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Cheesemit on Instagram and at The Wine and Cheesemit Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemit, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.